be in Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke for everyone started this series back uh, Thanksgiving weekend and all through Christmas and we are like halfway through chapter six if that gives you an idea of our pace kind of how long this book's going to take us to get through but Luke chapter six everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die. There's a handful of quotes and a handful of sayings that kind of fill my head and kind of live rent-free in, in my head, kind of randomly showing up just at, at different times in my life and uh, kind of like frequently on, on a loop. And that is, one that, is, uh, that is one that is very much there for me. Everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die. Something about this saying resonates with me on multiple different levels. When you hear that saying, it's not so much a knock of, uh, of faith so much as it is a knock on the stuff that is a part of faith. If you know uh, what I'm saying, the part of faith that gives it its, its grit, its vigor, its meaning. If we're going to get the good stuff, we've got to expect that there's some bad stuff along the way too that that comes with it in order for us to get the good stuff. Now that's a pretty amateur religious uh, assessment there. Nobody's going to write a, uh, a dissertation about that statement. Uh, but the, the, the saying does all the heavy lifting for me uh, and I think it's going to serve us well this morning. Everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to begin a long section of teaching known as the Sermon on the Plain. So let's just read here in Luke 6 where uh, this is kind of introduced and then we'll, we'll launch into this teaching. Luke chapter 6 verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. That's Jesus. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. This is where we get the Sermon on the Plain, if you didn't catch that. Uh, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. So we have this refrain again that we've seen in chapters 4 and 5 of Jesus healing and kind of uh, working miracles on these people, casting out unclean spirits, healing their, their physical ailments, kind of doing this thing. And there's a crowd that has now come out to experience those miracles and that healing, uh, but also to hear his teaching. So Sermon on the Mount, that's in Matthew. It's going to be uh, in Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Plain is in Luke. Matthew's sermon is uh, much longer, covers a lot more ground, covers a lot more uh, topics, but uh, there's a lot in there that overlap uh, too, and we'll, we'll see some of that this morning. Now, each of these sermons probably isn't a sermon like the one that you're listening to right now. This probably isn't Jesus getting up and saying, I've got 45 minutes, I've got a timer in the back, and let me make sure that I get this in, and then the band's going to come up and sing a song, and then we'll be done, and we'll all go have Mexican afterwards. That's not really what's going on here. This is a bunch of people that have come a long way to hear Jesus speak at each of these different uh, uh, at each of these different places, they've come a long way to hear Jesus speak. And this is Jesus' 
teaching over the course of likely several days, if not several weeks, uh, all kind of condensed down into uh, one sermon that we have recorded, but it's, it's probably a collection of teachings that Jesus was doing, probably a collection of teachings that Jesus was doing frequently, that he was doing uh, in multiple different places. Some people would say that uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are the same teaching, just recorded a little bit different. I don't think that's the case, as we'll see here in just a few minutes. There's enough differences, even though they're nuanced, that I think they're probably different sermons, but they also kind of carry the same weight and the same uh, message. And so this is probably a summary, and we have Matthew's highlights and Luke's highlights of that, uh, of that teaching. If you want to hear my take on the Sermon on the Mount, that is on our website. You can go do that. We did Matthew back in 2015, 16, I don't know, a long time ago. If you want to go hear that, you can go uh, hear my take on the Sermon on the Mount. But this is going to be a little bit different because I think Luke has a little bit of a different purpose for us. What Jesus is going to do in this Sermon on the Plain is he's, kinda, he's gonna kinda adjust the lenses for the disciples so they can more clearly see what Jesus has come to teach and what Jesus has come to do. So far in Luke, Jesus has quoted some Old Testament passages. He's kind of alluded to who he is, if not outright said who he is, like what his identity is, but he's not told anybody, this is what I'm all about. He hasn't done any of that. He hasn't said, this is who I am as a rabbi. This is my teaching that I want you to hear. He's not done any of that. He's done the miracles. He's made some enemies, uh, but he's yet to say, this is Jesus. Here's what you should know most about me. Now, he said in chapter four that he came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. But then he never really explains what that is, kind of this, this vague religious phrase that we don't really fully understand. And I don't think the Jews fully understood either. I don't think this is one of those things where, like, we missed it, but they probably would have understood. I don't think they fully understood his meaning there either. Um, and so he kind of leaves us to guess what, what he means when he says the good news of the kingdom of God until we get here to chapter 6. And he's going to, at this point, uh, rephrase that saying just a little bit that I gave you, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And I think really the, the, the gist of his sermon about the kingdom of God is this. Everybody wants the kingdom of God, but nobody wants to live in it. And I think that is the, the summary of what we're going to study over the next few weeks. This is going to take us all the way through chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus is going to say, everybody wants the kingdom of God, but nobody wants to live in it. And I'm here to tell you that includes you too. That includes you. You say, no way, pastor. I'm here on a Sunday morning at church. This is evidence enough that the kingdom of God is important to me and important to my life. No one gets up early on their day off and comes to church if they don't want the kingdom of God. Maybe that's the rest of the world. Maybe you can preach that message to everybody else. They clearly don't want the kingdom of God. But, but we're church folk. We're here. We're in the room. We came to learn about Jesus. We want the kingdom of God. You're preaching to the choir here, not to the rest of the world. We really want the kingdom of God. But listen to me. I'm telling you, you don't want the kingdom of God. You don't want the kingdom of God. I know Jesus said it's good news that he came to preach. And you can protest all you want, but you don't want it. If you don't believe me, if you want to argue with me, let's just read how Jesus opens up 
his sermon teaching us about the kingdom of God. You ready? All right. Luke 6, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. See, I told you. You don't want the kingdom of heaven. You don't, I, I, I don't care how well I know you. Here's what I know. You don't want to be poor. You don't want to be hungry. You don't want to be hated. And you don't want to weep. Am I right? Have I nailed you perfectly so far? I'm guessing I probably have because I've nailed myself here, right? I know I don't want this. Everybody loves the idea of the kingdom of God, but nobody actually wants to live in it because it sounds terrible, right? This doesn't sound like good news at all. Nobody wants the kingdom of God because it sounds like a miserable place to be. We want the opposite of all these things. And Jesus knows that too. That's why the next section is here. Look with me in verse 24. He says, but woe to you who are rich. You have, re you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do you want to be hungry, hated, poor, and weeping? Or do you want fat wallets, full bellies, smiles on your faces, and to be loved by everyone? Which one do you want? It's not a trick question. We all want the second set, right? This is what all of us want. We all want the second. And don't, don't give me your super spiritual answer. I know we're in church here. I know you, you're, you're thinking, well, I know this is one of those like, I know that what I really want, but I know what the answer is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the first one. So I'm going to say I'm spiritual enough that I want the first one because I really want the kingdom of God. The reality is we all want the second set of things. And it's okay for us to all say that to each other here this morning. That's what we all want. But Jesus says, woe to us that have those things. It does not take much exposition and application on my part to tell you this makes absolutely no sense. This makes absolutely no sense to any of us. It doesn't make sense to, uh, to, to an outside world that looks in on Christianity. But again, let's not pretend we're on some like next level spiritual plane in here this morning. It doesn't make sense to those of us in here in this room either. Everything Jesus just said, we all believe exactly the opposite. It is in our language. When we say that we are blessed, if you look up on Instagram, hashtag blessed, then what you're going to see is a great meal. What you're going to see is people hanging out with friends. 
What, what you're going to see, what you're going to hear, when you say, I'm blessed, you're going you're gonna to think of how people like you and respect you and care about you. All those things we're going to say are blessings. That's what we say is a blessing, right? So are we wrong to say that? Should we really be like, I just got in a car accident, hashtag blessed. Is that really how we should be? Like, take a picture of that and say, this is, this is a great day for us. I don't have money to pay the electric bill. Hashtag blessed. Is that how we want to, is that, is that what we need to be posting on our social media feeds? Are we just completely forgetting or, or ignoring what Jesus has taught us? Are we just completely bypassing all of that? Are we to reject a stake when it's offered to us, give back the money we earn, remove ourselves from all friendships and relationships that would bring us joy. After all, blessing and woe are pretty distinct categories. You don't really like blend those two, and Jesus is very clear about who is in which one. Here's an even better question. Did Jesus even believe this was true? After all, we, we just saw on Easter, we talked about the theology of, of feasting and fasting. And Jesus said that whenever he is with the, the disciples, they don't fast, they feast. And why do they feast? Because the, the bridegroom is there and it's a time to celebrate. So how is Jesus going to stand up and say, blessed are you who are hungry and who weep, Woe to you who, who, are, who are full and have friends to laugh with when he is full and has friends to laugh with. How can he stand up and say that whenever the Pharisees accuse him of being so full and having so many friends that he is a glutton and a drunkard? Is Jesus just a hypocrite for this teaching? How can a guy accused of partying so much that he is a glutton, then say that the kingdom of God belongs to those that are hungry and weeping while he goes around eating and laughing it up. Obviously, we got some work to do if we're going to figure out what is going on. So the question is, does that mean if you pulled up this morning in your, uh, in your Bentley, are you actually cursed? Anybody pull up in a Bentley? Because if so, we need to talk. That... Uh, are you actually cursed? Does this mean that if you rolled up on your 1998 10-speed with a warped tire, that you're actually blessed? The answer to both of those questions is maybe. But we'll get there here in just a second. But not because you have a Bentley or because you have a bike. Uh, it has to do uh, with, with something a, a lot more. So, so first, what are we even talking about when Jesus says blessed and woe? That word blessed is a word that communicates like happy or fortunate. Uh, so you could replace in there, instead of blessed, you could say happy is the person who is hungry. Um, it's a type of happiness that implies you are so happy that you are unaffected by changing circumstances. It is a, a happiness that transcends even the worst of life, but the worst of life doesn't even really exist because you've got the best of life. So, so Jesus says that that, that, that is who is, is blessed. So that's what the word blessed means. But the word there for woe isn't so much a pronouncement of a curse. That's what I think of. Like Jesus is saying, woe to you. You are cursed if you have these things. It's not so much uh, a pronouncement of a curse so much as it is a descriptor of life. So think like 
woe is me type of thing. It's a sorrow that is, bar- that is brought about by more than just circumstances, but that is felt deep in your gut for what life has brought you. So, so you can replace, uh, maybe substitute happy for, for blessed and sorrowful for uh, woe, just to get a bit of a different effect, but a better feeling for what it is that Jesus is uh, saying there. It can be easy to take one of these at a time. I thought about doing these one at a time, and that would take us uh, like all the way up to the summer, like to the, to, to the end of, of May. We could do these one at a time, but honestly, I think they all work together to, to basically make the same point here, all right? I think they have the same emphasis. They're all saying the same thing with a slightly different take on the same problem. And Jesus clearly intends for the blessings and the woes to go together because each blessing has a direct woe that contradicts it. So those two obviously all work together. Now these might be similar to what you read in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's different enough that we need to see them independently. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are what? What does it say in the Sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The qualifier is there, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's no moralizing here. We don't get the qualifier. This is straight up about money. This is straight up about possessions, bank accounts, and wallets. He's not talking about being poor in spirit. That's one of the best ways to preach the Sermon on the Mount without offending people is that you immediately go from poor to in spirit. I'm not saying you can't have money, and then you preach it right there, right? You, you go in that direction. But that's not, this is straight up talking about money. Yeah, great. I'm going to sermon about money. Fantastic. No, just hang with me, all right? You know how I know, you, you know how I know that this is about money and it's about stuff? Because, because it says that you've received your consolation in verse 24. You've received your consolation. That word consolation is a very, very interesting one. Now, I try not to, to go too deep in Greek here because I can get in over my skis in a hurry. Uh, but, but I think this is an important one that we cannot miss this morning. That word consolation uh, is, it comes from the word paraclete. It's paraclesin, all right? And what that means is, so like para, that means like come beside, all right? So you follow me with that. It means comfort or help, all right? So that word where it says consolation means comfort or help. So that's saying you have received, if you've got money, if you're rich, you have received your comfort or your help. Now there's a few other places that word is used, but there's, there's, there's one over the course of about three or four different chapters in John that I think is important for us to, uh, to, us, for us to hear this morning. So John chapter 14. You can turn there because you'll see this in chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. But I'm going to read one instance here where it says it. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. That word helper, when Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit, all throughout John 14, 15, 16, and 17, that word helper is talking about the Holy Spirit. It is the same word whenever we have the word consolation in Luke chapter 6. 
It comes from the same root word, paraclete. What, that's what the word is there, all right? So the, the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He is our comfort. He is our helper. He is that. But in Luke 6, 24, it says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? He says, you are a sorrowful person with all your money because it's all the comfort you will ever have. You will not know the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The only thing you will have to comfort you is your wallet, and that is it. He says that our money is our only hope to, feel, to, to, to fill the place of, of what the Spirit has been sent to do. You sorrowful thing. You need the Spirit, but all you've got is your money. You can swim in your money like Scrooge McDuck if you want to, but it won't comfort you when you most need it. Same word, same word, very different outcomes. The rest of this all follows the same pattern. It's the same message. You have all you need now, but that means that you won't have all you need later. And Jesus never does what he does in Matthew. Matthew, it's the poor in spirit. It's those that hunger for righteousness. None of that here. You can't dodge this application by spiritualizing it. So what do we do with this? This is a heavy teaching, no? None of us wants what it is that Jesus says is the way of the kingdom of God. What do we do with this? Here's what I think is happening. Here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus is setting up a sermon, and he's going to give us the application of this setup over the course of the rest of this chapter. All right? So he's setting up in the beginning of this sermon the rest of uh, the, the sermon. It's going to take us a couple more weeks to get through it, but this is the intro. I think Jesus is doing the same thing that I try to do every week whenever I stand up here. He's trying to be provocative to get your attention. He's trying to say something to make you stand up and say, hang on, you said what? He's trying to get you to, 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 to like draw you in to put this out there to, to kind of shock people. But just because he's doing that doesn't mean it's any less true. He wants to give you a reason to listen to him. He wants you to hang on his words, and he's doing it to build this tension. He's saying things don't make sense to our ears or to the way that our minds work. When he says those things, they don't register for us. We hear them, and we're like, hang on just a second. This can't mean what I think it means. Let me try to find a way around it. But they are true things, just paradoxically so. So they don't readily make sense to us. They seem backward. Even like he, he, he got the blessings and the woes mixed up as he was preaching. Right? Wouldn't that make more sense to us? Wouldn't that register? Like, woe to you who are poor and hungry. I feel sorry for you. Blessed are you whose bellies are full, whose table is full of friends, and whose wallet is fat. That is 100% the way things work in this kingdom. 
Wouldn't that make more sense to us? Like, he just got his blessings and his woes mixed up. Maybe a scribe somewhere, like, flipped these. And, and it's actually how it, how it should be. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. They seem backward. But everything Jesus says is true. And I think we have to be careful thinking that he's requiring or even suggesting a vow of poverty. I don't think that's in view here whenever Jesus says this. Well, Jesus would later talk about how uh, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't think he's advocating homelessness. I don't think he's advocating that we give up everything that we have. But I think he is warning us how things work in this world versus how things work in the kingdom of God. And we would do well to listen this morning. The kingdom of God does not operate on the same basis as our world. In the kingdom of God, first is last. Death is life. Rich is poor. Hungry is full. We tend to think that the kingdom of God is this world just better. That's our definition of the kingdom of God. It's this world, just better. All the things that we want, just without the guilt. The world as it should be. The world as it should be is a place where Tennessee never loses a football game. The world as it should be is, is a place where you eat dessert for breakfast. The world as it should be is one where everyone thinks, I am amazing. That's how the world should be, right? And that's what the kingdom of God is in our mindset. Where everyone thinks I'm great and I have everything that I could ever want. But when Jesus teaches about the kingdom, he's here to kind of reset our expectations. It will look and feel very different than we'd imagine. It will look and feel very different than we would even want. Why? Because what we want is so small. So insignificant. What God has for us what God has for us is so much richer and deeper. What the world has for us and tells us that we need for comfort is stacks of dollar bills. What God says is what you need for comfort is the one that I will send. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the world has leveraged everything to tell you that the stack of dollar bills is better. And they're good at it. Oh my goodness, they are good at it. Satan has everything at his disposal to convince you that this is all good. The kingdom of God is what our hearts, our souls are designed for. And what we try to do is fit a tiny square peg in a round hole. The peg might fit, but it doesn't mean that it was made for it. This is what Jesus is saying in these blessings and these woes. This world has no end of things to fill you. None. It is, a, it is a bottomless supply of false gods. You could try the rest of your life to find anything that would, that would, that would fill you. And you would never even come close to running out of all the things that the world has said, this will do it. You would never even come close. And what Jesus says is that if you fill up on these things, 
what everyone in the world is trying to do and what everyone in the world is trying to convince you to do and what everyone in the world is trying to convince you, you are crazy if you don't do it. If you try to fill yourself up on those things, you will be empty. But if you find in this world no way to fill yourself, not enough food, not enough sex, Not enough alcohol, not enough success, not enough education, not enough information, not enough relationships, not enough money, not enough praise, not enough any of it. If you realize that that stuff doesn't actually fill you, it can't or it won't, then don't despair. It actually means that you are blessed. It means that you are blessed to feel the weight of that, to know the weight of that. God cannot or will not bless you when you are full on the things of this world. It is an impossibility. You can't receive it. But for those that feel the weight of the emptiness of this world, you are ripe for the blessings of God. Jesus has, as he teaches this message to this point, lived for 30-ish years and has been uh, see, and, 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 and he has seen so much of what the world has to offer. He has seen so much of what they put forward. And no doubt he has seen person after person that cannot receive the blessings of God. Because frankly, they don't need it. And man, if this was true of them, how much more is that true of us in the most prosperous society in the history of the world? We don't need God. We don't. Not to be happy in this world. In the sense of like stuff and like having things that that are supposed to make us happy. We don't need God. We can get by just fine without him. Who needs God's blessing when we just bought a giant house with the money we made from the job we got, from the education that we got, in the great nation that we live in? Who needs it? If you say, well, that's not me. I don't have all of those things. Well, maybe not, but I guarantee you, you got something in there. We can create a world where we don't need God, and that's not very difficult at all. And Jesus agrees. He says you don't need him. You don't need God, at least not right now. But just be aware, when you need comforting, when you need something that all this world tries to give you and this world cannot provide, it will not be there. You won't have the Spirit there to give it to you. All you'll have is the stuff that this world has promised would make it all better, but it won't. It never has. Not in Jesus' day, and not even today, with all of our technological advances, it still won't. We've gotten better at fooling ourselves, but we're still just as bad at saving ourselves. My fear for my own heart, my fear for your heart, is that we will be so full of this world's offerings that we will never feel the sting of knowing that this world is not our home. All right, all right any of y'all ever been on a cruise? If, if you go on a cruise, 
it's a pretty great deal, right? Or maybe just go like on an all-inclusive vacation, right? All the fun you can have, every type of entertainment you could want, and the food is everywhere. Like when I found out, first time I went on a cruise, when I found out that, that there was like four entrees on the menu and I could just be like, I'll have one of each. That blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. But that's how that works. Like you can get whatever you want. If you don't like it, you just order another. If you want to, just order another. That is how it works. Ice cream on the deck next to the pool, all you can eat. It was amazing. But when it was over, here's what I can tell you. I just wanted to come home. But what Jesus is warning us about, what he is warning us about here, is that we've mistaken the cruise ship full of offerings that this world offers us for our home. What he wants us to know is that while none of us would sign up for hunger or weeping and poverty, that those things, those are the things that God would use to remind us that this world, for all that it gives us, is not our home. You don't have to seek those things out. You don't have to seek out the brokenness of this world. It will find you. You can hide in your enclave. You can be behind a gated community. You can, you can join whatever clubs you want. The brokenness of this world will find you no matter how much you try to insulate yourself from it. The brokenness of this world will find you. And Jesus tells us that we, we are blessed in those moments when we find comfort not in the things that we have, but in the way the Spirit moves in our lives. Jesus tells us that we are blessed when we feel the brokenness of this world, not because they are desirable in and of themselves, not because we should seek out the brokenness of this world, not because the brokenness of this world is in and of itself a good thing. It is not. But when we experience the brokenness of this world, it pulls back the mask and it says, look, this isn't everything that it's cracked up to be. This, this pulls the curtain back on Satan who is pulling the levers and we realize that all is not, where, not well in the Emerald City. It's not all good here. Why? Because we've been duped. And when we feel the brokenness, when we feel the pain, whenever we have to deal with all the problems, it is a chance, it is an opportunity to know, to know this world doesn't have the solution for us. Suffering, pain, loneliness, emptiness, is any of that good? Absolutely not. But they reveal what this world has leveraged everything to hide from us. Those things do what nothing else can. Everybody wants to live in the kingdom of God. Everybody wants the kingdom of God, but not everybody wants to live in it. Because if you can live in the kingdom of God, you've had that all exposed. You've had the mask ripped off. And you've known all too well that there's more than this world can offer. The story of Ruth, I think, is a, a beautiful picture of this. We, we looked at Ruth back in August, September of last year. 
More specifically, the story of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Ruth chapter 1, I want you to hear what, what, what Naomi says. This is in the wake of her son and her husband dying, trying to deal with a famine, trying to figure out the way forward. Terrible grief, terrible pain, all the brokenness of this world all over the place. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them, this would be Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now remember, when she says she went away full, she actually went away because of a famine. She was empty, but she didn't realize it. Now she has come back in the midst of brutal tragedy. But she is now in a place where she can actually receive God's blessing. Why? Because she's empty. Because she desperately needs him. Is the death of her husband and her sons good? No, absolutely not. But that tragedy is still able to be used by God in her life. She is empty and she feels every bit of that emptiness. But then you fast forward to Ruth chapter 4 in the end of the story, verse 14. And the women said to Naomi, this would be after Ruth and Boaz have married. They have now had a child. Things have completely changed in the life of Ruth and Naomi. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Empty to full. This is the path of the kingdom. And there's no other way around it. We try so hard. We desperately want to go from full to full. But it doesn't work that way. It never has. That is not how it works. Empty to full. Everybody wants the kingdom of God, but nobody wants to live in it. But that's how the kingdom works. It's how it's always worked. How do we receive life? It is through the death of Jesus. How does the comforter come? It is through the death of Jesus. How are we made full and made whole when we have broken and ruined the relationship with God? It is through the death of Jesus. This is how the kingdom works. The brokenness, we don't have to seek it out. We just have to be aware that most of the time we're trying to run from it and hide from it. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, when he says those things, that doesn't mean go seek out those things. But what it does mean is that you have been given something that will enable you to know God in a way you never could have otherwise. 
And when he says, woe to you who have all the things that this world would tell you that you need to be happy, woe to you because that may be the, the entirety of the happiness you will get. That the best moment of your life right now might just be the best moment you will ever have. Because all eternity will not be the same way. It's not a fun place. Jesus is going to kind of explain a little bit more how these things play out in our everyday life. How the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of earth. He's going to lay all those things out. But we've got to know that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God comes through brokenness and through death. And that our comfort is only through the death of Jesus. It's the only way that the kingdom of God works. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess that this is a hard truth. As the disciples would say over and over, this is a hard truth. Who can follow this, Jesus? And the reality is in our flesh we cannot follow this. We don't seek any of this out. And so we ask that, that, Father, you would enable the Spirit in our lives to comfort us in these moments, and that we would rely on the Spirit to comfort us, not on, on anything else this world would give us, not on, 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 on full bellies and fat wallets. Father, give us the humility to see the path of the kingdom. And give us grace to follow that path. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.